Hello, and welcome to We Can Be Heroes with me, Paul Burston. This is the podcast in which my guests are invited to wax lyrical about their heroes and heroines, people who've inspired them and helped shape their lives. I'm an author and journalist, and there are many people I consider heroes, both real and fictional, famous and not so famous. Among them is the late, great David Bowie. And each one says something about me, because the people we regard as heroes often reveal who we are, our strengths and our weaknesses, the struggles we faced, and the times we've shown courage we didn't even know we had. It's been said before, but it bears repeating, not all heroes wear capes. We can all be heroes, even if it is just for one day. To be brown and gay, or to be brown and queer in general, it's still such a politically difficult thing to be. For me, Freddie Mercury was very much like how I felt about James Baldwin much later when I discovered James Baldwin's work, that he kind of held up a mirror to society, you know, but he did it through music. She was writing about all of the things that I write about now, like how, you know, women friendships are really important. And there's a Lucille Clifton poem for that. You must love your body. Yes, there's a Lucille Clifton poem for that. Oh, you must love your hips. You must love your hair. There's a Lucille Clifton poem for that. This is such a lovely podcast. Can I just say, (laughs) I get to talk about all of the people I love and it's so much fun. My guest today is poet Nikita Gill. Born in Belfast and raised in India, she now lives in the south of England. Nikita has published seven volumes of poetry, including The Girl and the Goddess, Fierce Fairy Tales, and Where Hope Comes From. Hello, Nikita. Welcome to We Can Be Heroes. How are you today? I'm very good. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me, Paul. It's a pleasure. This is the podcast where I invite my guests to share the names and the stories of people that they've grown up admiring. They can be a mixture of famous people. They can be fictional people, they can be family members, they can be friends. But I do think what's interesting about this conversation is how quickly people reveal elements of themselves when they talk about the people that they really look up to. It just seems to invite people to confess, you know. (laughs) So having warned you of that now, who is the first person that you'd like to talk about and why have you chosen them? It's Freddie Mercury. I've loved Freddie Mercury since I was a child and I am going to make... um, I don't know whether this is a controversial statement to make, but like, I really believe that if we had more years with Freddie Mercury, the landscape of music would look very different than it does now. Um, I think it would be richer, even richer than it already is, uh, because I thought that his contribution to not just rock, but like the fact that he was quite eclectic with the amount of genres that he used in his songwriting. I just think that he was such an interesting artist But more than that, like his story itself is so interesting. The fact that he was queer, the fact that he was working class, the fact that he came from the Parsi community, which is a really small community now, like it's getting smaller and smaller. As a brown girl growing up, a brown queer girl, I really found his story fascinating. But also I grew up with his music and I loved him. So yes, so that's the first person. I can Uh, remember first hearing Bohemian Rhapsody I must have been very young. I was at school and I had a friend who had an older brother. So a lot of my musical taste was from listening to my friend's teenage brother's music. So that's why I got into David Bowie at a very young age. And he also used to play Bohemian Rhapsody all the time. And we learned all the words and we used to walk around the playground singing it and doing all the different vocal parts. But when I got to my teenage years, 
and I was getting bullied a lot, a lot of the, the guys that would bully people like me wore denim jackets with huge patches on the back saying Queen, which was just so ironic because oh. A, it says Queen on your back. <laughs> and B, if you look at archive footage of him, he didn't make much of a secret about it. I mean, he was quite flippant and very campy in interviews on television. Yeah, that's exactly what I love so much about him is that how authentically himself he was, not just as an artist, but like in his, in just his being. There was something so unapologetic about his existence as a human being. The thing with him as well is that I know that like when Bohemian Rhapsody, the movie came out, there were a lot of people who were like, you know, this is very dangerous because they're, you know, the, the way that um, when he says that he's bisexual, like uh, immediately the, the, the actress, of course, this is all in the context of the movie. She shuts him down and she says that, no, you're gay. And the thing is, he didn't want to be labeled. It was very clear with his existence that he didn't want to be labeled. There's something about him as an artist that I love, but there's something about him like as a human being, the courage that it takes to be yourself completely and unapologetically in every interview you do as well. Like I think there's something really powerful about that. Right down to the fact that he never got his teeth fixed. He never got his teeth fixed because he said that it was so important to him as a musician, that his vocal range and everything, but like just his existence was just so powerful, so meaningful to me when I was growing up. I wonder if there's a link between his refusal to categorize himself and his refusal to be pigeonholed as a person in terms of his sexuality, his culture, his whole being, and the way that he approached music, because he also denied categorization. Right, right, because he was into prog rock, he was into disco, he was into everything, and he it came out in his music, and there's a reason why almost, I think it was every song that he wrote ended up being like a greatest hit, which is so, so powerful, but also the other thing I feel is, growing up in India, like as a young bisexual, like as a queer girl, and not really having the language for that, because obviously it was pretty much illegal to be queer at all, till about 2018 in India, to have this really powerful brown man go out and like really take ownership of that and be a queer elder. I had someone to look up to and who was a queer elder to me, you know, that lack of queer elders, I think it really does a number on the psyche of like everyone who has to live in a country that, that it isn't allowed because there's no way to discuss it. There's no way to talk about it. There's no one to go to for help. And like, for me, I, I turned to Freddie Mercury for that. It's almost like, you know, you see those movies in which, um, there is the character that like, you know, a young person keeps turning to and that person actually speaks to them. Freddie Mercury was that for me. He was my hero. He still is my hero. It's devastating that we lost him so young. Do you remember I, how young you were when you first became aware of him? I think I must have been about four or five. My oh parents my loved Queen. They loved. So when I say I grew up with that music, it, it is I grew up with Queen. I grew up with ABBA. I think my parents had wonderful taste in music because I grew up with all the right, right kind of songs. But yeah, I, I was very young. I must have been about four when I heard Bohemian Rhapsody for the first time. And the thing is, the feeling I got when I was four, I, I still don't know what the song is entirely about. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if he did. <laughs> I think that's what's so powerful about his music, though, is that it's not, it does something that poetry does as well. It didn't matter to him if everybody appreciated or like, you know, understood or like completely like pulled apart the layers of the music to understand exactly what it was. He was just there to create something and give it to the world.
and that's I just yeah amazing amazing so I, I could talk about Freddie Mercury 19 to the dozen but like yeah he he is an incredibly powerful um, part of my childhood right down to what he meant to me growing up in India. I can remember because I'm a huge Bowie fan and obviously Bowie lends his lends a lyric to the name of this podcast but I remember when they released Under Pressure and it was such an unlikely collaboration because Bowie at that point was painfully cool it's before he lost his credibility in the 80s and Queen weren't cool at that point they were seen as a bit naff it was a really interesting collaboration and such I think it's an amazing record I love Under Pressure I think it's a really great song not just the way that they wrote it together, but also the way that the song gives each of them a platform for their specific kind of singing. It's such a brilliant song. I wish they'd, they'd recorded more together when they did that session. I wish they had, we had an entire album from them because that would have been so cool. I think I spent a lot of time thinking about what we could have had from like the musicians and the artists and the writers that we love. I, I feel like for me, Freddie Mercury was very much like how I felt about James Baldwin much later when I discovered James Baldwin's work, that he kind of held up a mirror to society, you know, but he did it through music and he did it through music that every song was a banger. Every song was a banger. And his image, his image was extraordinary because when they first became famous, you know, he was wearing all the the satin and tat, as Bowie would say, all the, all the glitter. But then so was everybody else. It was kind of the fashion in the 70s. But then by the early 80s, he's dressing like a really recognisable Castro queen. I mean, there's no two ways about that look. It's just completely gay, isn't it? It really is. That's what I loved about him. He just was so authentically himself. And with his partner, even though he died, he was cremated wearing his wedding. I find that so beautiful, that fact about him. He was such a romantic I think that was really beautiful about Freddie Mercury, that he was such a romantic because of the way that he talked about Mary Austin, you know, yeah. like he was just saying she was my only true friend. And like, there's so many beautiful bits from his like interviews where you see, you know, his spirit, his soul, you know, and you, you see that he, he had to keep away from his, the man that he thought himself married to. Um, and he died wearing that wedding ring. And it just, there is so much tragedy there. Like when I learned the full story, I must've been about 14 and I remember sitting and crying and crying for Freddie Mercury, who had died years and years ago, you know, and like sobbing and kind of going. I think that it was coming from a place I didn't quite understand yet, the, the tears, because what it was, was that I was starting to understand what the AIDS pandemic took from us as a community. And I didn't have words for it. I didn't have language for it, but I had tears for it. And that was something that connected with me, not just as, oh, this is what we would, the AIDS pandemic took away from us, but also as we don't have, we didn't have queer elders in India. And I was like, wow, we, I feel like a part of me is missing and broken. But luckily that hole was filled in by, you know, Freddie Mercury and James Baldwin and Audre Lorde. And I had their words to kind of take me through it, but it was very much because Freddie Mercury was such a big part of my life since I was four. You know, so it's been 30 years of, of him existing in my life in some way. I can remember when he died because I was already involved in actor, AIDS activism. And then I was working as a journalist at City Limits. And it was a week after Freddie died, I interviewed Mark Almond. And Mark Almond was really upset about it and was mm -hmm. saying how it didn't matter whether people liked the Queen's music or not. Everybody loved Freddie as a person. He was such a big personality around he was always at heaven on a Saturday night. The sun, I think it was, 
one of the tabloids anyway, were really going for him and po posting pictures of him looking gaunt and then speculating aloud, are you ill, Freddie? In the fallout from that, there were several journalists working for the tabloid press, one of them being Piers Morgan, who would try and doorstep people. They wanted to find out if any of these other gay pop stars were HIV positive. And I got doorstepped because I was friends with somebody who was a pop star. And they doorstepped me to ask me how he was looking, how he was doing, was he looking ill, was he looking thin? When I hear someone like Piers Morgan on, on television, which I try not to do, obviously, but on the rare occasion that I do, and he's trying to make out that he's always been a gay ally. It's like, no, you weren't, mate. I've heard horror stories about Piers Morgan from like, you know, friends who he's... And also like the funny thing with him is it's not that he doesn't understand how boundaries work. He fully understands how boundaries work because the minute you criticize him on Twitter, I've been blocked by him. He's very good at establishing boundaries for himself. It's just that he doesn't believe that he owes anyone else the same courtesy. I got blocked by him when he was having a go at trans people and saying that, that he wasn't coming from a place of prejudice because he was such an ally of the LGBT community. And I replied saying, so why did you send that journalist to doorstep me that time? And he just blocked me straight away. He can't take criticism at all. I don't understand how he's lasted this long, but okay. <laughs> well, I think Freddie is a very legitimate hero to have. And I think he stands for a lot of different things, culturally, musically, and politically. His death, rather like Rock Hudson in America, brought home the reality of AIDS to a much bigger population. Queen's audience was made up of all kinds of people. It was very, very broad. And across generations. So like, I'm, I'm obviously, my parents listen to Queen and I'm, you know, I listen to Queen and now my nieces are listening to Queen. So it's like, when you say across generations, it's really across generations, all kinds of people. And that is, it is Queen, but it is Freddie Mercury. He's so identifiable. To be brown and gay or to be brown and queer in general is such a, it's still such a politically difficult thing to be. It's still so hard to be. Like I was talking to a friend of mine who was basically saying to me, she was like, I can talk more openly about my abortion than I can talk about being gay and being South Asian, being like being Indian. Like it's harder for me to talk about that than it is to talk about, you know, my abortion. And I, I, I was like, wow, the number that does on our brains as people to not be able to talk about such a big part of us. And that's now that we're talking about 30 years ago to be all the things you've just described and then to be so famous and to have everything that you're doing under the microscope and being watched all the time. It's a very big ask, isn't it? To ask somebody mm. to be. And also the language around um, AIDS at the time that was being published everywhere. It was so toxic. It was so painful. So if you're a man who has it and how do you like not internalize all of that? How does that not do a number on your mental health and then to still go and announce, you know, that, that this is what has happened to you. The amount of courage it must have taken from him to do that and to still stand by the right thing every step of the way. Just, yeah, I love, I, I, there's so many reasons to love Freddie Mercury, but like, yeah, I, I, I still feel so sad that we lost him so young. Yeah, he was very much an emblem of like, he brought in change, I think, even in, in his death. 
because like you said, there were so many more people who then suddenly identified with him and kind of went, you know, okay, this can happen to someone I love. Because this is the problem with human beings, I feel, that unless it happens to someone you care about or yourself, you don't recognize or understand it or feel what a painful thing it is. And I wish it wasn't like that. I wish empathy was easier and sympathy was easier for people. I wish it was the first response we had when we heard something awful was happening to someone else. And for a lot of us, it is. But then societal conditioning comes in and like you kind of like start questioning that first point of empathy. Because if you see on social media, the first response that you see to do like a school shooting or like do a war or anything is this outpouring of like empathy and, and sadness for those people. And then suddenly this other narrative starts happening and then it's it's almost like it gets withdrawn. It's very strange to constantly see it. It happens repeatedly, you know, and then social media is just like shone a light on it. So it's like the first response from human beings in general is to first feel pain and to, to want to grieve with someone. And then it gets yanked back. I wish we kept that first response and held it closer for longer. I think it's very interesting what you're saying. I was thinking about Harvey Milk and how Harvey Milk famously said that there wouldn't be liberation until every gay person came out. So everybody would know somebody who was from this community. Of course they do, they just don't realise that they do. And it is a really, really big step for, it's a bigger step for some people than for others for all kinds of different reasons, whether it's to do with their background or their families or their culture or their job or all kinds of other other factors. But ultimately he's right. And until everyone comes out, you can't change the world, really, can you? And like, especially right now, looking at the way that, that, you know, there's that don't say gay bill in Florida, which is giving me some serious Section 28 vibes, you know, like the way that like these rights, which have been fought for by generations, by our queer elders can be rolled back so quickly and easily. That's terrifying. But like you say, like there is no liberation until all of us are liberated, until all of us can come out and be comfortable about it. At the time, in the late 80s, when Clause 28 was first thrown out there, I can remember really vividly, I was young and quite apolitical in a way. I went to Pride, but I wasn't really political. We still had an unequal age of consent. When I came out, I was 19, so for two years I was breaking the law. But there hadn't been any new homophobic laws for a long, long time, and suddenly this law comes along. And the language that it was using, the way it was demonising us, And the pernicious way that it was worded so that it created a climate of self-censorship. What does the promotion of homosexuality even mean? Teachers would feel awkward or justified in their own prejudices if they had a queer kid in their class. Sickening, isn't it? It's actually sickening. Like, it's the most sickening thing I can... You lived through this, and that's... I'm so sorry that the world... I, I wish I could say that the world has changed, but, like, looking at, like, how quickly things just keep getting rolled back in the way that things are progressively getting worse again. It's so strange, isn't it? Because we fight and we fight and things happen and it feels like progress is like just in hand. And then it gets released. Like it's like sand that like leaves your palm and it's gone again. A lot of the policies that I'm seeing come out of this government right now is also very deliberately vaguely worded. When they say that they're going to rewrite the Human Rights Act as a Bill of Rights, what the hell does that mean? Like if you read the Human Rights Act, it's like which of these rights do they disagree with that they feel like they need to gut it? So speaking of like human rights, the next person that I actually want to talk about is my grandmother. So my grandmother's name is Taran Vadera and she is 
she is the love of my life but she is very much a hero because she is the epitome of what i would say resistance looks like and, and standing by your principles and standing by your values and it's something i learned from her and her stories and everything that she taught me growing up so my grandmother lives in jammu jammu and kashmir which is quite a troubled area and i am kashmiri uh, from my mother's side of the family which can be of quite a, a difficult thing to be politically because of where kashmir stands in the political spectrum what i do know is to be kashmiri is something that my grandmother taught me what it meant because she obviously her family was affected by partition which was a very very painful time in human history it's called the greatest forced migration which happened in the last 100 years because millions of people were displaced 80,000 women were raped and of course there were women who were kidnapped and taken to the other side based on their looks so that you know they were taken as like wives by the other side and it's just it was a religious conflict which still echoes through india today but my grandmother lived through partition and i remember her telling me stories about partition that were they were devastating like she would talk about like you know uh, her uncle coming home really shaken because like he just managed to escape a mob she had like two brothers who were in the army and they just never came back home you know they were young like 18 you know she is the youngest of nine children and so that's the other thing about my grandmother she's watched everyone she loved uh, or she loves pass away all of her siblings her parents uncles and aunts like she's the only one sort of left she said to me when her oldest sister died her oldest sister is 18 years older than her and she passed away i think about 10 years ago now and she said that now i feel like an orphan now i feel like an orphan because that was her older sister who raised her i learned a lot about generational trauma and grief and how to persevere through it from my grandmother because despite all this sadness and death and living through this very painful historical event she is still the happiest smiliest person i know i don't know how she does it like she is the happiest most joyous human being i've ever met in my life she has and she has joy to give to everyone she has time for everyone's pain an amazing person and she's always accepted me for exactly who i am in every way and this is exactly why when people tell me that oh the older generation didn't know any better when it came to like bigotries etc cetera, etc cetera. i don't buy it for even a second because my grandmother isn't like that at all you know and she comes from that generation she was born in the 1930 i want to say cuz she's 90 so or yeah 1932 i think so she's from that older generation that people always say oh they can't help being racist or they can't help being homophobic or whatever She's not like that. She accepts everyone just as they are and always has the same amount of time for them. So, it's possible. It's 100% possible. Like and I'm sure there were people around her who were bigoted like growing up and stuff. She just didn't take any of that on because in her head she said that you know all human beings because she's um she's very religious. She prays every day and she She said to me that according to the god that I believe in we were all made equal all of us whether you're christian whether you're muslim whether you're hindu whether you're gay whether you're straight we were all made to be equal the fact that we are not equal right now is our own doing that we have decided that we are not equal and we've decided that there are certain people that we're going to treat worse than others 
and we're going to elevate certain people over others. And I'm just like, the fact that she knows all of this, and she's not exactly like politically sound in that sense that, you know, she's following all the news and everything, but this is the way she sees the world. Like, in, it's incredible. It's an incredible to have had that kind of upbringing in my life, to have seen the world like that already and gone, I love her. I, I want to emulate who she is in my life. I wonder where those qualities came from in her. You said she's very religious, so presumably her faith is very she's important. Sikh. She's a Sikh. Um, and in Sikhism, we believe that all human beings are supposed to be equal. We believe that anyone who's less fortunate like than you or less privileged than you, you help. Like So all Gurdwaras have uh, langar and they have seva. So you feed everyone. Like that's part of like the Gurdwara cultures that you feed everyone. And it doesn't matter if they're Hindu or Muslim or Sikh or wherever, wherever you come from, you come to the Gurdwara uh, during langar, you will get a meal and you will sit side by side with everyone. In the same, you will all sit on the floor and you will all eat together. And I think that that kind of, you know, when you're raised with that and you see that because she used to go and do seva at the Gurdwara all the time. And you're raised with that. You kind of, you, that's how you see people for the rest of your life. Everyone's equal because everyone eats together in the same way and they eat the same food. I think that's really, I think it is definitely connected to her faith. I think that's where my grandmother got it from, like this ideology, which is just, it's otherworldly because it's so progressive. And she's someone who was born in the 1930s, you know? The girl and the goddess, like the, that relationship that I have with my grandmother is so clear in that book because it very much is about generations of women and what we give each other. I've always said like she has a witchy vibe to her. She definitely does. <laughs> <laughs> and she loves it. She loves when I say this about her. So she's got like this beautiful big garden where she grows lots of herbs and she's got this like really like you know magical vibe to her where she like heals like your pain in 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 the most gentle elegant way she'll give you like a piece of wisdom or something and you're just like Phew. she's basically the Sikh version of stevie nicks <laughs> i'm gonna tell her this i'm gonna play her a stevie nicks song and then tell her this she'll yeah. be so happy with that <laughs> she sounds absolutely wonderful and how lovely to have a an older relative like that growing up to look up yeah. to and to learn from who is the third person that you'd like to? This about? is such a lovely podcast. Can I just say, <laughs> I get to talk about all of the people I love and it's so much fun. It's Lucille Clifton, the poet. My greatest grouse in poetry till date is not about my own work. It's not about like anything else. It's about the fact that Lucille Clifton was nominated for the Pulitzer twice and she didn't win. Her poetry does this thing, which I think of as complex brevity, where she'll take something huge, and she'll just condense it down to about six lines and she will make such a powerful point that that poem will stay with you forever. And you can memorize her work. But she wrote really unapologetically about being a Black woman. There was no language at the time for like poetry to exist like that, you know, to be so, e so easy to read, but yeah. say such big things in like about six lines. And she kind of wrote with so much celebration about being a black woman about existing you know she talks about being non-white and woman and like from babylon and like come and celebrate with me that every single day something has tried to kill me and not managed that is such a powerful statement to make and she wrote about it in such a like i still write in ways that sometimes i feel like i'm apologizing for myself being brown and queer and a woman 
Her work is, it is very political in many ways, but it's political in the sense that everyone can also identify with it. And I think that's a real skill to be able to write about such big things and to celebrate every single day the things that about yourself that you're taught to fear or dislike, because that's the other thing that we're taught as marginalized people is to constantly, we condition ourselves into like thinking like the oppressor. We constantly teach ourselves to be that way without even realizing it because that's social conditioning for you. And to break out of that kind of thinking and to just celebrate who you are as a person is very similar to Freddie Mercury. All three of the, the people I've spoken about are like elders to me, basically, right? They're heroes, but they're also elders to who I then later on became as a person. Brevity is something I practice greatly in my own work. Simple language for complex emotions is something I practice greatly in my own work. And it's Lucille Clifton that taught me to do that. Lucille Clifton is also the reason why, before I send my poems anywhere, I read them out loud. I think it's such a powerful piece of advice to give to poets that before your work goes anywhere, read your work out loud. Anything that you stumble over doesn't, shouldn't be there. It's such amazing, such simple advice, but such necessary advice. When you talk about empowerment in today's day and age, Lucille Clifton's work is the first person who I would mention. Of course, she was writing years and years ago now, but that is empowering work. She was writing about all of the things that I write about now like how you know women friendships are really important and there's a Lucille Clifton poem for that oh you know you must love yourself and there's several Lucille Clifton poems <laughs> for that you must love your body yes there's a Lucille Clifton poem for that oh you must love your hips you must love your hair there's a Lucille Clifton poem for that when did you first discover her so I must have been 17 now the thing is like this takes me back to something which I I, I do mention every now and then but our books, um, when we were studying poetry in school, our poetry in school was very much cishet white dudes from like 200 years ago. So of course you had like obviously John Keats and Wordsworth and you had all of the, but this is in India. Like there was, there was one brown poet and it was Rabindranath Tagore. And other than that, our entire textbook was just full of white poets, you know? And if they were all male poets. And I remember saying to my teacher at the time, I was like, where are all the women? <laughs> and she basically sent us out and said, like, you, go, you need to go find them because they're not in the curriculum. And Lucille Clifton and Audre Lorde were the poets that I found in Sarojini Naidu. And I remember reading Lucille Clifton's work especially and kind of going, oh, oh my God, this is a person who's like writing about things that I can associate with. When she writes about nature, she's writing about the woman's body. She's writing about what it is to be a woman and, and, and like a woman of color, but especially being a black woman, that is what she's writing about. And that experience, it's a very powerful experience to have when you're 17 or 18 years old, I think. Like that's such a tumultuous time in your life because you're technically supposed to be an adult in a couple of years or something. And like that's coming towards you and you don't know whether you, you, you're you mentally prepared for it at all in any way. And then there's someone whose work that you look at and you're like, oh, 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 there is someone out there who identifies who, who is like me. Maya Angelou is the, is the, other, the other poet who, again, with simple language, manages to do such complex things. And there's a real power in that. I think somewhere along the way, people decided that accessibility isn't 
a good thing. I'm always so confused about that because language belongs to all of us. And the more people that can understand the thing that you're talking about, surely the more powerful that thing is. I'm always suspicious when people celebrate writers who are sort of willfully obtuse. I'm a big fan of Stephen King and Stephen King's book on writing. And he stresses in there that the word that comes to you, not necessarily the first, but that comes strongest is the right word to use. And don't try and find a cleverer word for it because that just kills it. It ruins things, which is why like when I write my poems, a turn of phrase will come to me and it sounds good. And I'm just like, I'm looking at this turn of phrase and going, wow, you know, this, this really works with the poem. And then there's this inner critic that goes, maybe you could say it better. And when it says better, it's not necessarily meaning better. It means you could say it in a cleverer way. Like, it's just, it's like, why? Why, why would I need to change the simplicity of what I'm trying to say into something more, I don't know, that sounds intellectually superior. I, I, I hate it. I hate it so much. I really struggle with books like that as well, like, because you can see it. You can see it when someone is just deliberately just trying to be <laughs> obscure for no, no rhyme or reason other than I want to look clever. Life's too short for that kind of stuff. I think there was a time in my life, like 17, 18, where I was open to being impressed by people like that and thinking that what I was doing or what I was reading wasn't good enough. It took me a long time to actually accept that what I was reading was good enough and that not everything that one reads has to be literary, in inverted commas, there are people who are great storytellers or great character writers. I heard Marlon Riggs the other day on a podcast I had not heard before, and he was talking about how important it is for white writers to read more genre fiction because you will not hear the voice of black characters in much literary fiction, and it's in genre fiction that you'll hear them. And I, I hadn't even thought of that, but of course it makes absolute sense. I don't understand this, this conversation which is currently happening, that genre fiction is somehow inferior to literary fiction. I keep hearing it every now and then, and I'm just like, why? Like, all of the books that you see behind me, most of them are genre fiction. What is the one on the top? What is that one? Oh, it's Lisa Jewell watching you. I, I love, love Lisa Jewell. Her books are so, so good. Like, I remember when I first moved into this house, Lisa Jewell, Lucy Foley, there's a whole bunch of thriller writers. I just became obsessed with thrillers because I'm a huge horror and thriller nut. I've been like that since I was 12. And I've always considered it a genre that I'd like to one day write in. So I like just devoured like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books. And then like Lisa Jewell was the one that I kept coming back to. Lisa Jewell and Ruth Ware, they write these like domestic, like it could literally be the person next door to you that like you're terrified of because something is going on. They do this, this sense of thriller so well. But yeah, Lisa Jewell, I'm obsessed with her. She was sitting like a few tables over from me when we were doing signings for something. And I was just like, oh my God, I want to go say hello, but I'm terrified. <laughs> I think I've got this like terror of meeting my heroes because you know what they say, right? About meeting yeah. your hero. <laughs> yes, but I met David Bowie and he didn't disappoint me. So... I did meet Nikesh Shukla and he didn't disappoint me. So it's true. He was, he's turned out to be the loveliest and the best person ever in my life ever. So yeah, like sometimes your heroes not only do not disappoint you, but turn out to be the best people that you know. Do you wish you'd met Freddie Mercury? Oh, every day, every day. I don't think there's a time when I listen to Queen and I listen to Queen a lot that I don't wish that I had met Freddie Mercury. You know, I wish I had met him. Like at one point I was, maybe if I look into my family history, we might be related, maybe. <laughs> <laughs>
had wonky teeth growing up. It could be. <laughs> oh, it's been so lovely talking to you. I'm so happy that you you decided to do this with me because I've really enjoyed this. I don't get to talk about my heroes like this often. This is great fun. <laughs> Thank you. My thanks to Nikita for being such a great guest. You can find out more about her and her work by following her on Instagram or on Twitter. Coming up soon on We Can Be Heroes. I thought we should just get it out the way first. Let's just get it out the way and move on. Let's just put her out there on the table and then we can move on. So you know who my first person is going to be. And I thought, God, this is all so cliche, but you know what? We are cliches at times, aren't we? So let's just give into it. So of course the first person is my favorite material girl. I had to choose Madonna. It's Julia Roberts playing Liz Gilbert in Eat, Pray, Love, which I first saw when I was still a junkie. I'm accepting that my, my thinking, I can be Julia Roberts in Eat, Pray, Love is so specific. But when she goes to Italy, I go, God, I didn't know anyone could do that. She's gone to Italy and she's learning Italian by eating spaghetti. This has been We Can Be Heroes with me, Paul Burstyn. Please subscribe and join me next time. Thanks for listening.